I mean, I think blockchain is a really expensive way to store things, but I think it could be really, really valuable to the mortgage servicing industry. I think a, a, a combo platter of um, that uh, with some other data storage methodologies and approaches, um, you know, is what is needed. But interestingly, Clayton, uh, convergence or this new word that you and I have to come up with um, should be on the blockchain. Hey folks, Clayton Collins here, your host for the Housing News Podcast, and I'm coming to you from Dallas, Texas, swagged out from head to toe. So I just got back from a lot of travel this summer to a box of packages on my desk um, with some really cool stuff. So shout out to everybody who is just so cool and fun in the mortgage industry. I'm rocking my Dale Vermillion Batting 1000 Yeti mug, got one rental at a time, new book on, uh, on, on rental homes by Michael Zuber, rocking my Deacon Lumber hat from Stinson Dean. And I can't forget, I love mortgages. Thank you, Ryan Eller. Folks, today's guest on the Housing News Podcast is someone that's really special and honestly, one of the smartest people that I know in the housing industry, specifically in mortgage servicing. Courtney Thompson is EVP and Chief Product Officer at Sagent. She has an incredible background leading from law to servicing at a, a large bank now into the, the prop tech and fintech space at Sagent. Courtney shares some excellent perspectives on managing servicing and technology through multiple market cycles. We talk about MSRs, we talk about the relationship between origination and servicing and secondary markets and the hurdles to incredible technology adoption. If you're watching this on YouTube, I hope you're not too distracted by my ridiculous swagged out look. But uh, if you're listening, really hope you enjoy the episode. Hey folks, and now a quick message from our housing news podcast sponsor, Radiant Title Services. You hear the term blockchain show up more and more in the real estate industry, but what does it mean for lenders and homeowners? And how does servicing work when funding mortgages from the blockchain? Radiant's title insurance and closing services platform, Title Genius, answers these questions with a blockchain-enabled online portal that gives you simple pricing, smarter processes, more transparency, and superior service. Visit MyTitleGenius.com. And if you're a real estate agent, there's a link right on the landing page with specific knowledge for you. Check out MyTitleGenius.com for more information. All right, cool. Well, thank you for joining Housing okay. News. Um, we're going to talk about some some good stuff today, uh, but I want to kind of start out with with your story and your career. Uh, I just you know not many people who uh, kind of come through the mortgage industry with the servicing background and go into make waves in the the mortgage tech space. So uh, tell tell us about your path. How did you get into mortgage and how did you get started here? Well, I'm often told actually that that humans are put in mortgage servicing when they're really nice and charismatic, but didn't do well in lending. <laughs> um, and so they're given an opportunity in servicing. Um, but mine was super non-traditional, which probably is apropos for where I am and what I'm doing today. I actually wanted to be Perry Mason uh, when I grew up uh, and I went to law school and I wanted to be the first female partner at a firm in a big city. And that big city was Detroit. Uh, and I ended up working for a boutique real estate firm that had a lot of bank work. So uh, big mortgage companies in the metro Detroit area, uh, big uh, banks and lending institutions around the country. 
And we were, if you think about like the default legal network in mortgage servicing, Mm -hmm. we were an escalation firm. So when there were matters with the firm that needed to go somewhere else um, from a, for a different amount of attention, I don't know expertise, but a different amount of attention, um, you know, I would handle those matters and I handled them pre-recession and then I handled them post-recession. And so it was, you know, all the Truth and Lending Act challenges of, you know, pre-recession days. Uh, and then it started becoming default and default avoidance matters. And I did that for a while, but um, I didn't know at the time. Uh, but I know now that my brain needs much more activity than arguing the same cases over and over again, the same fact patterns over and over again. And while, you know, consumer matters against financial institutions were really good for my ego because I was winning a lot more matters <laughs> than, you know, a typical lawyer, you know, at that stage and, you know, doing that type of trial work. Um, ultimately, I at the time that I was going to leave the firm, um, the firm actually got picked up. In um, we were a regional law firm, uh, but we got picked up in the Independent Foreclosure Review, which was a national uh, referendum ultimately on loss mitigation, uh, because there was a big fancy silk stocking firm that got conflicted out because of lobbying activities. What, um, what year was this? Uh, Two thousand nine. Nine. Okay. All right. So we're in the, yeah, yeah. We're the, the beginning of the workout phase. Right, right. Right. So it was Dodd-Frank happened. The CFPB was forming and mm-hmm. the OCC and the FRB were like, boom, boom, boom against the 15 uh, largest servicers. And it's a cool story because what happened was we parlayed the work that we've been doing in the space for the prior decade or whatever. Um, and we actually ended up building test scripts and had to evaluate files. We uh, had a financial institution that actually decided to do a loan level review instead of a data review. Um, and so we were looking at alleged bad acts and practices of the bank um, during the you know recession period to determine whether or not there was borrower harm from those activities. Uh, it was it was pretty wild. It was an in-depth look at servicing systems and information. It was an in-depth look at why the heck can't servicers produce the same dang report uh, on a day-to-day basis? Like, what is so wrong with this, right? Um, And at the time, I didn't have the answers. Uh, But from that, I was uh, hired by Flagstar Bank, um, who repeatedly gave me all of the best gifts I never asked for, uh, (laughs) to manage what became the CFPB's first consent order. Um, so, so hold on one sec. So yeah. you were ready to bounce out of law in like 2009, yeah. Before, yeah. But like, but, but that, but that we didn't leave, you didn't join Flagstar in 2010. You wait, you were there for like, till like 14 or 15, right? Well, the independent foreclosure review, federal initiative yeah, okay. was supposed to be, so 18, you got the, it was the, supposed to be 18 work, months. The work sucked you in. Three years. Um, yeah. and I loved it. It was super complicated. I didn't know what the answers were. Um, so I really popped from a lawyer hat to a consulting hat. Uh, and then when I was hired by the bank, I was originally hired to be compliance servicing advisory uh, for that consent order. And as soon as the CFPB non-objected to our first iteration of you know what we would do, um, they April Fool's Day, no joke, uh, 2015, I was in the COO's office, uh, Lee Smith, and he was just like, "We think we're going to move you to the business line." And I was like, what? Like, what does that even mean? And then all of a sudden, I was a servicing operator. Uh, and so it was a hat to hat to hat to hat. So 
um, outside legal litigation, outside advisory, outside uh, compliance consulting, inside compliance, inside operations. And then, you know, I ran the default servicing operation at Flagstar for, you know, almost eight years. Um, And, you know, during that time period, I learned why the technology was so poopy. And actually, I had a lot of credibility based upon the activities that we did um, from a risk perspective, where I had pretty much, it was a bank, so we had liquidity. I had giant CapEx projects to find out ways to do servicing better because the tech wasn't great. So can we like can we use why the tech was so poopy as like the subject of this episode? Is yes, that- please. Yes, okay, please. Okay, yes, please. Right. I'm, I'm, my my swear alarms are very very strong on me right now, so you it's, might it's, get some really fun words today. It's having a it's having a nine year old at home. I, yeah. I, I have not, I've not built that filter yet, so my kids are out there like getting suspended from oh, kindergarten yeah. or something. Oh, yeah. well, but I don't I mean, know. It, it happens. <laughs> my, my son also was suspended from kindergarten for a snowman holding a Miller Lite can. Um, (laughs) uh, so it happens. It's all right. Uh, no. So, so it was crazy. So I just kept changing hats and we ultimately built, um, a data environment. We built proprietary loss mitigation technology because the, there weren't solutions in the marketplace. The FinTech boom, if you want to call it that Mm -hmm. had not happened in the same way in mortgage as it is, or is becoming today. And it was a wild child of a learning experience. Um, and so, you know, two things. One, why not, right? And um, three, when I, when I had the co- same call that I had when I was going to leave my litigation practice, like in my human body, um, that it was time for me to move on and it was time for me to do more. Um, of course, you know, the first thing uh, that I thought about, inspired in part by Costa Ligris at Stabby, um, was to do what I had been doing with the fintech community while at Flagstar, which is helping them build better bridges, right, to financial institutions, sometimes telling them to put on a collared shirt. Um, and also, like, vendor management isn't your business partner, right? The business doesn't always make the decision. You still yeah. have to get the CEO to say yes, right? And it is the navigation of these things that's so important for these tech companies um, at, in an initial instance. And then the second thing that I did, you know, as Consigliera, which was my consulting firm that I started when I was trying to find what my next revolution was going to be, um, you know, was uh, a lot of, there's a lot of really good ideas in origination. And I did this with Stabby and we've done it with a couple other companies. There's so much investment and everybody wants to be in origination because there's so much money and yada, 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 yada. How do you bridge those into servicing use cases? Uh, because at the end of the day, if you think about servicing loss mitigation and you think about origination, it's the same. Um, and those are two critical pain points. Um, and so, you know, I've helped some companies evaluate how to make a bridge to mortgage servicing for, you know, that more consistent drip, even at a smaller margin. So let's, let's back, back up a little bit. I mean, so you, your first exposure to servicing was in the, during the, the, the GFC, like you saw this in 2009, like the 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 worst of the default servicing or, or the best of default servicing, which depending on which side you're on. Um, and then you saw a more normal market <laughs> at, at Flagstar in like yeah, 14 yeah. to 21. Like how, what did you learn about servicing in a, a regular housing market in 2018, 2019, 2020 um, when uh, defaults and... Um, significantly less than what you saw a decade earlier. 
Well, I think that the biggest thing is that you you always need the infrastructure, no matter how many loans you have. Yep. And so you always need the major compliance infrastructure, right? You always need um, end-to-end servicing technology to do the thing that is mortgage servicing, whether 1% of your portfolio is delinquent or 8% of your portfolio is delinquent. Mm-hmm. What happens in servicing, though, when you go f- closer toward that 8%, is you need way more humans in the operation uh, because uh, technology has not evolved since it was born in 1968 and 1972 uh, for mortgage servicing. The core servicing platform has not evolved. And so humans are still holding processes and change management and the fragmentation together because depending upon what institution you work for, there are varying degrees of investment um, in gluing the fragmentation together. So how does, how does servicing philosophy and default servicing philosophy change? Um, not just in an environment where there's 8% default versus one, but when the average homeowner, whether they're performing or non-performing has housing equity and like we're seeing housing wealth and home equity at record levels right now. Like does that profile carry into the default loans or are you seeing a totally different equity scenario inside of that 1% pool? So I love that question, and this might be a controversial response, but I'm okay with it. Okay, um, Interestingly, I think that depending upon where loans are serviced, it doesn't matter at all to the mortgage servicing process. Reason being um, is subservicing is um, so ginormous uh, in our environment and from a subservicing perspective, you know, your servicing obligation is to service the loans to the rules. And that's a huge obligation. Mm-hmm. Um, but the better subservicers are able to demonstrate that not only can they service the loans compliantly to the rules, they can also asset manage. Uh, and the better subservicers are doing that. Um, but what we're finding and what we're hearing a lot in the industry is that asset owners, MSR owners, um, actually, we saw the Two Harbors announcement um, in the purchase of Roundpoint uh, a couple weeks ago. Um, they're going, I think I want to manage my own assets because I want the same skin in the game with regard to the underlying servicing instead of running an outsourcing model. And I think that that will become more important if we see more tension in the universe with regard to consumers' ability to pay um, and really understand that equity, because that's also a problem uh, in the consumer landscape is, you know, the basic understanding of what that equity means in my home and what I can actually do with that. Yeah. I mean, that understand misunderstanding, I think is real. The last few yeah. weeks I've seen this meme circulating social of like homeowners asking their real estate agent or lender for their, for their money back when the home value went down from, right. um, from their purchase yeah. price. I, I think it's a joke, but maybe those are real text messages that agents have received. I don't know, but, uh, definitely a misunderstanding of how equity and home equity works. Yes. Huge. All right. So the other like big dynamic that um, that you've seen change in in your time in servicing is IMB's interest in in retaining servicing. I think you were starting yes. to flirt toward that in a second, a second ago. Yeah. Can you go a little bit deeper into like some of like the the IMB leadership mindset? Like what what was the shift where serv- retaining servicing became more attractive? And then we can kind of go down that rabbit hole a little bit deeper. So I think that. 
at the IMB, I, was, I Clayton, I feel like I'm I'm, I'm going to offend and, someone anytime I say something. Oh no, it, no, no, no and this I, isn't this isn't about your former employer. I mean, this is like every no, 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 IMB oh, no, 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 that's, no, no. that's former, out there. So, my, no, my yeah. former employer is amazing. No, but so like yeah. banks are banks, right? Banks are large institutions. There's a lot of red tape. There's a lot of committees. Um, I didn't suffer bank wealth, um, yep. you know, and I think IMBs. Um, our, I, I, I started in big bank land too. I know what you yeah. mean by I didn't well, suffer I just, bank wealth. You know, I, I, God love the banks and I want to help all of the banks and I'm much better running in and saying, Hey, yep. what's going on and helping banks figure things out and then running out, um, because I'm not as good of a disciple. Anyway, the IMBs I think are making really, really great investment in smart people who are looking at this thing that I call convergence. Um, which is a word that is yet to be described, which I believe should be the future of origination and mortgage servicing, which is there shouldn't be two. There should be one thing. Um, Clayton, maybe you and I can call it, name it today, um, right? And it should be one thing where there's an integrated ecosystem of information, um, automated offers to consumers, um, you know, and and looking at. You cannot have a customer for life, and everybody uses that tag phrase, particularly in origination, but you cannot have a customer for life unless you uh, manage and master the servicing process, the longest relationship that a financial institution will ever have with a consumer. And that ultimately is what we're doing um, at Sagent. Um, and and we're, we're looking at that problem. So- I, yeah, I mean, I my very my first mortgage was with a lender that prided themselves in their their members when they were yeah. borrowers or clients, and like they sold my loan two weeks after we closed. Like, am I still a member? I don't know. Like, no, you're not. You lost your card <laughs> or your jacket. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so so let's go a little bit deeper there. So when you talk about like there's a the intersection of origination and servicing, like is in direct the, as it currently stands like a two prong or actually three prong ecosystem. When we think about the secondary market, um, d- doesn't align with the customer for life mindset, which when we saw IMB start to retain more servicing over the last several years, like the first flag that got waved was like, Hey, we are customer for life. Like we're, we're holding on, yeah, on to servicing. That's what we want to do. Okay. So, but like, that's also kind of in conflict to like the value of MSRs that like are kind of attractive, like cash flow tools if you're a lender. I think it depends on at what time and at what iteration of the ecosystem we're in and what do we care about right now, right? And what do we want to control right now? And where do we see the largest upside? Genuinely, the largest upside in this entire ecosystem is if we let 2020 technology take over the plumbing, the infrastructure of both of these ecosystems and say, hey, guess what? It was created amazingly and it was designed as it worked, right? It was de- it worked as mm-hmm. designed, excuse me. Um, but no longer are we living in an infrastructure where one, these two things should be separated or two, these two things should be so spackled with humans uh, holding them together. Uh, and then I think that, yeah, I think that the reliability of the MSR asset goes through the roof, maybe closer to like a European covered bond, right? Um, You don't have the big losses when you have the reliability in the system. And I think that the reliability, although a soft metric to 55-year-old finance guys, my favorite folks in the industry, um, you know, I think it's important because the types of losses that you can have on these assets are total losses. 
uh, when they're not serviced appropriately. And so, you know, I think that I, I think that there has to be a shift in the total ecosystem. And then you get to the question of is innovation in mortgage, one of the oldest industries on the planet, even possible? Uh, and there's a lot of tension there. I mean, we've seen the digital mortgage folks, you've talked to them recently, actually, you know, really go out on the playing field hard for this. And it's a, it's a game that we're continuing to play. And now we're going to take a, a really quick break for this week's edition of the Mortgage Minute brought to you by Angel Oak Mortgage Solutions. When you specialize in something, you become the go-to expert on that particular topic. Hi, this is Stephen Winokur, Chief Marketing Officer with Angel Oak Mortgage Solutions, bringing you today's non-QM Minute. It's something I call the law of focus. The more you focus, the higher the market share you get within that area. You can apply this to the mortgage industry with non-QM. An ideal start would be to focus on self-employed borrowers and gig workers with the bank statement program. Many self-employed can't qualify using tax returns and are turned away by realtors or other lenders. Get the word out that you specialize in solutions for the self-employed and can help avoid fallout situations. You can do the same for real estate investors offering investor loan options. Work with a trusted lender like Angel Oak to understand how to learn your niche and promote your specialty of solving loan scenario problems. It's easier than you think and can help you close more loans and gain new referrals. As a friend of mine used to say, it's time to get rich on the niche. And that's today's non-QM Minute. Okay, so I think from a consumer perspective and originator perspective, like having this lifetime relationship matters. The One of the benefits from the consumer side is when there is an opportunity for for rate and term refi or accessing home equity, there's this direct line of communication yep. with the lender that can influence that. There's also, but that also could have downstream consequences to the value of mortgage-backed securities. If the yep. ability to 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 refi shortens um, average loan tenure, so like, and we also we know that capital markets are kind of like the tail that wags the dog in the housing ecosystem. So like, how do you turn this like Titanic ship in terms of like knowledge and um willingness like when there's like constituents big powerful constituents that might not be the beneficiaries of title change and yeah. I, I don't mean title as in like title insurance like title as in like the ocean t-i-d-a-l yeah yeah no no, no. <laughs> um i'm with you on that but i'd love to talk to you about title insurance no okay um, <laughs> No, you know, I, I mean, I think that it is a significant change, but I don't think that we can look at the current environment and say, it makes sense for me to spend 80% of my non-interest expenses on humans and real estate and bad computers that we don't update uh, as a part of our you know regular system uh, to have poor connectivity with consumers to barely meet minimum requirements of the regulators. I mean, that's not it either. Um, you know, it's not a flashy uh, B2C tool that's going to keep a consumer in your ecosystem. It's treating them, treating them the right way and moving into, and I, I hate to get too woo-woo, but like more collective thought on this, right? I think that we're seeing a lot of um, archaic financial systems, maybe even capitalism, uh, being challenged in today's environment. Right. Um, I, I mean, and it doesn't it's not political at all. It's just like question mark. Right. Um, but it is, you know, if we are actually trying to create customers for life, we're actually trying to help those humans 
we're trying to give them more loans, maybe more types of loans, right? So maybe we expand um, our servicing purview into all of the different types of loans that a consumer might have, insurance, you know, each of these other things. And there's different ways to make money. I know for sure if we keep avoiding it um, or saying no to it, uh, somebody's going to say yes and somebody's going to do it. Um, and I'm working with people that are doing it. Yep. And so um, it's it's going to change. Would I love the industry to join arms together and say, yes, we want access to our data and servicing. Yes, we want to destroy the vertical silos of working in each of the individual categories of it. Um, why can't I? Uh, know what I communicated to a consumer today on the telephone. Oh, wait, I have to wait till tomorrow until my system updates to let me know. Um, like that's, it's blasphemous. And so, you know, somebody's going to do it. We are doing it at Sagent. There's other great people in the marketplace who are creating competition and servicing. And, it, you know, I, th I think that the ecosystem has to adjust. I'd rather go with the times than against it. But I do think the downstream implications that you're, you're pointing out are some of the handcuffs uh, that do need to be considered and released because uh, there's a lot of really smart financial people in this industry and there's a lot of new ways to make money if we really think about it. So like, you know, as well as I do that, like being early and being wrong can be the, the, the same thing. <laughs> yeah. So like, how do you manage like the industry's desire to adopt technology and be more efficient and reduce costs to originate um, with the reality that lenders have trouble moving quickly, not necessarily to their own fault, but because of the ecosystem that surrounds them. So what's, what's the talk track? How do you get executives moving from like the mortgage operator mindset to the fintech mindset to actually focus on the horizon while maintaining profitability and viability in 2022 and 2023? You know, um, you know, it's I, breadcrumbs, honestly. Um, yeah. Right now, it's needs-based. Um, we have the best team um, for analyzing and communicating and developing clear, consistent, standardized processes yeah. to the regulators in the industry. Um, and those are the retentions that we're earning trust on right now, right? Um, and we're going to continue to do that because our goal is to be the mothership of help and assistance to the industry. And so if I can show you how to defragment your environment in a loose style with bringing your information together and understanding how that works and understanding what the requirements are so that you no longer have to think about compliance because it happens um, and you have it on the grid in a way that you've never had it before, then maybe you're going to trust me when we come out with the next thing, right? Um, and this is a, a very important industry, as you know, from a relationships perspective. Um, and it's showing up and it's doing a good job every single time and not promising things that you can't deliver. Um, and always, you know, being willing to help. The number one thing that I learned when I went out on my own to figure out where I belonged in the industry and where I could put my energy um, was a load of people. And I could give you all of their names. You would know them all. They reached out to me and had informational interviews with me. And they always started with, Courtney, how can I help you? And I was blown away, one, that anybody knew who I was at all. Um, but two, that, you know, that's the ecosystem that we live in. And I learned that and I adopted it immediately. And, you know... At the end of the day, we might be slow to evolve. 
you know, we might spend too much time on the golf course. Uh, but at the same time, there is this like wild network of people who are brilliant, who are willing to help you and are willing to tell you, Clayton, quite candidly, you're really going to run into a wall if you do that. Maybe you should do it this way um, because you don't want to be wrong. Um, but I guess we're going to start where we're not wrong. Uh, we know how to manage information um, uh, in the fragmentation of mortgage servicing and deliver good tools, products, uh, standardized processes within that because it's the number one thing servicers need to do. We know how to write beautiful policies and procedures and say nice things, you know, and really, really, really communicate with regulators, whether they're a 25-year-old with a backpack from Ernst & Young or they're a real deal regulator with experience. And we're finding that the regulators, it's not like the regulatory environment in 2014, 2013, where they were still learning too. Um, There's really, really smart people at the Bureau now, and they're reasonable and they just want servicers and lenders and other folks to like show up and give a dingling uh, about the environment and show mastery there. And that's what we can do now as we begin to deliver new products that we're going to want the industry to try. Um, but it all comes with trust. So I think there's a perception in the industry that the regulator can also be someone that adds burden and cost structure to the transaction. But I feel like you're pointing at a scenario where regulation could actually be a pull forward in technology and force the industry to a more efficient ecosystem. (laughs) Huge. I mean, think about it. Think about the fact that the regulator is, and you know, I have, I have been subject to the heaviest kind of regulation at the nastiest Mm -hmm. time that it can be possible, you know, in the context of a consent order, which was successfully resolved within the defined time period. um, The first time it came out with the CFPB and yes, it's a pounding kind of situation. Um, You know, I have always operated under the guise of truth is truth and let's collaborate. So even in the context of the nasty CFPB of 2014, by being honest, by showing things that were achievable, by raising your hand when, you know, this went awry, you know, calling something ugly, ugly. Um, again, you earn those relationships of trust. And I think that, yes, being evaluated and having to do the work to prepare for these audits is incredibly expensive. But imagine if all of that work was on the grid uh, where you could pull a report um, or you could pull an analysis of a given file and you didn't have to spelunk 45 systems to put together the story of what happened with Mr. Smith's loan. Mm-hmm. You know, and well, and well, Courtney, are you using are you using the word grid as a more uh, uh, less scary f- word for blockchain? Yeah. I mean, I think yeah. blockchain is a really expensive way to store things, but I think it could be really, really valuable to the mortgage servicing industry. I think a, a, a combo platter of um, that uh, with some other data storage methodologies and approaches, um, you know, is what is needed. But interestingly, Clayton. Uh, convergence or this new word that you and I have to come up with um, should be on the blockchain. Uh, and that's so, where these things unite. So Courtney, you and I are both in sprint mode today and have to wrap up soon, but I have yep. one final question for you. What is one thing that you've changed your mind on in 2022? Like what, what is like, what if, what did you come into January 1st believing that you feel differently about now? Um, believe is a heart is a big word for me. So I will use the word something that I came into the universe understanding in 2022 that has changed. Um, 
you know, I, I came to Sagent with a very specific mission that we've talked about a lot. And I was ready to roll up my sleeves and dig all the way to the bottom and do the things, you know, from a, a domain perspective that like, I'm used to doing and my crew's used to doing, we're going to be like drawing on whiteboards all day long, and we're going to get this done. Um, and and what, what I've noticed is there's been a really, really interesting evolution in this industry. And it has to do with sales, sales cycles, and expectations of vendors. And it's this, um, you know, in the olden days, or even in my olden days, um, vendor relationships were a lot about social events, socialization, uh, you know, knowing people, and hey, I'll do this guy or that guy a favor. Um, I think that the industry has a much higher expectation of products, product delivery, um, and the humans behind them. And sales really don't happen in this industry unless you have a CEO in the room, a CTO in the room, um, and you know, in my case, the CPO in the room, mm-hmm. um, so that you really understand the humans on the other side of the transaction. And it is not a fancy steakhouse or a Pebble Beach uh, that is going to close that deal. It helps still, depending upon who you're talking to. Um, but I, but I think that that's. I don't know if it's a me too thing. I don't know if it's a, a, a evolution of the humans that are in um, these seats now. Uh, but the expectation is certainly higher, and I'm kind of proud of us. Uh, and and it's 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 a little bit more tiring for me because it was maybe a, a job description function that I didn't expect necessarily, or understand necessarily. Um, but it's been fun. Uh, I wouldn't change anything. And I'm kind of proud of our industry uh, for leveling up in that regard. I love that learning. Courtney, thank you so much for your time today. Awesome. Let me guess, housing market uncertainty has you guessing what's around the corner. It's the reason we created Housing Wire Annual. Housing Wire Annual is where the community from across the housing ecosystem comes together to share strategies, drive business, discover new technologies, discuss best practices, and meet industry leaders. With four different tracks, including mortgage, real estate, valuation, and title, our agenda is power-packed with content to propel your company to the next level and connect you with the industry playmakers. Join us October 3rd through 5th at the Fairmont Princess in Scottsdale, Arizona. Head to housingwireannual.com to secure your spot now and use code PODCAST20 for 20% off tickets. Bam. Now that is a wrap of this week's episode of the Housing News Podcast. Do me a huge favor and go to iTunes and rate this show. And if you leave a comment, you better tune in next week because you might get a shout out. Thank you.